You're listening to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust, exploring essential knowledge and strategic practice. Hello there. Welcome to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. Today, we're looking at vulnerability and technology. Now, there's a saying among entrepreneurs that every once in a while, a new technology, an old problem and a big idea can turn into a real innovation. Well, if we're all agreed that vulnerability is most definitely an age-old problem and that fintech, financial technology, is certainly a new development, does that mean then we're just one ambitious app, service or startup away from a digital innovation that could change everything? If that's the case, then there is certainly no shortage of fintech solutions vying to make this difference. And with an increasing number directly addressing vulnerability, we thought we should take a look at what was available in the company of some of the people either responsible for these developments or keeping a very close eye on them. So joining us in part one of this review, as we've got a special podcast dedicated to open banking coming up later in the series, I'm delighted to be joined by Dominic Maxwell. Hi, Dom. Hello. Dom is the co-founder of Teljo, a digital tool to prevent payment arrears and reduce financial exclusion by helping customers to assess their level of vulnerability and financial capability. Uh, Tony Leach. Hi, Tony. Hi, Chris. Tony's director at the Vulnerability Registration Service, which provides a single database for consumers to self-register as vulnerable and for firms to check against this. Andrew Gething. Hi, Andrew. Morning. The founder of tech firm Morgan Ash, who traditionally have worked within the insurance sector, but have created a wider model for financial services and beyond to help assess the degree of vulnerability that a customer is experiencing. A bit akin to a, a credit score, we'll find out a bit more about that later. And Mick McAteer, the founder and director of the Financial Inclusion Centre and author of the recently published and hugely readable commentary, Fintech, Beware of Geeks Bearing Gifts. Hi, Mick. Hello, Chris. Now, talking about tech on the radio is possibly similar to watching snooker on a black and white television in some ways. So for that reason, as well as listening to our discussion today, you can find links to video pitches, uh, demonstrations and extra resources uh, in relation to all the things we're talking about on the podcast, either on the Vulnerability Academy portal for Academy members or at moneyadvicetrust.org slash podcasts. Okay, so let's start as always with some absolute fundamentals. And perhaps if that's okay, I'll, uh, I'll start with Andrew on this and others can come in. So, Andrew, every, everyone's talking about fintech at the moment, but what exactly is it? Whew, uh, I think that's a very wide question. So it's, uh, it, it's a trend, I think. Uh, and I think the, um, the motivation for that trend is that uh, a lot of financial services and insurance companies were... Uh, we're not using technology and we're probably slow to adopt technology. So uh, it's a trend, in my view, uh, of increasing use of technology uh, across the space. Fantastic. Um, Dom, do you have the same conception? Uh, yes, I think so. I think um, it's. For, I do think there's a lot of branding with it and a, a bit of uh, overexcitement about the, the descriptions and so on, and it does account for everything. I think also far more interesting is what's going to be happening with open banking and the connections connections with fintech and that so so is, is a large high street bank uh fintech if it has an app just so we can try and be a bit clear about the definition is, is that fintech uh yes and to my mind uh we, we use a very a very simple definition of fintech really and it's just the application of technology and data to the design distribution and purchasing of financial products and services so yeah i mean if a if a big bank uses big data and technology to do those things then that, that they're involved in fintech yeah Fantastic. And, so, and Dom, Andrew, Tony, would you can then consider yourself as fintech firms? Just no. 
No, oh, there's a firm no there. It's kind of let's who who does? It's kind of a no, well, certainly I don't. But I've been impressed with the development of some of the fintech companies, but they're almost going too far. Um, recently, they were announcing robotics, so you could get financial advice from a robot at three o'clock in the morning. It just seems a little bit extreme. Extreme and kind of um, you said no, Dom. Is that right? Uh, we're trust tech. Trust. Wow. Okay. There this is from the cat amongst the pigeons. <laughs> but what is trust tech? So, so basically, it's a format where we can interact with customers, uh, and we're a trusted platform to do that. Fantastic. And Andrew, trust tech, fintech, or just? I, tech? I have to say, I like the trust tech label. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't go around saying I'm a fintech company. Um, we look after you know vulnerable people. I have medical staff doing that. Uh, it's more about empathy and customers. Uh, but absolutely, we use a lot of technology. So. If if people want to call me fintech, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to wear that label from that point of view. Your answer to any name that we give you—that's fantastic. That's what we like on the uh, on the podcast. And, and and Mick, just to kind of put this in uh, perspective in terms of a, a, a timeline, is it even possible to kind of you know trace the evolution of this? Well, I, th- I think that's the that's probably the best way to describe it, Chris. Really, it is an evolution rather than any sort of real step change. You know, I mean, there is a lot of hype about what fintech's going to do and what you know, going to radically transform financial services. Every time I open a paper, I hear people talking about transformation and disruption and, and what have you. What it is is an evolution of what, what what has gone before. But I think what it does do, it actually gives quite a big push to what were already evolving trends in financial services. If you look at the history of financial services, what you see is that financial services is becoming increasingly segmented, is becoming increasingly individualistic, and we're moving away from the principles of mutuality and collective provision of financial services. So in essence, really what, what, what fintech and big data does is it actually makes financial services more individualistic and more granular than it has been. And it's given a push to what was already an established trend. Yeah, I think I think one of the 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 trends of so-called fintech is that technology will solve everything. And I think I'd absolutely disagree with that. And, and from a vulnerability point of view, one of the downsides is that if you go to and let's let's take an online application or an online banking or an online you know service delivery, um, that may be great for a large proportion of the population, but it will exclude a lot of people who who can't interact using that method. So the moving to um, this this present wave, if you like, of technology, which is mostly like online forms and apps, uh, is great um, for, for the majority, but it, it, it's excluding the vulnerable. So there's an accessibility issue here and one that we might return to. So a fragmentation, an atomization of financial service provision, um, the shift towards a, a channel that suits um, many, but not all, and issues around kind of accessibility, of course, have trust with them as well, you know, that we need to be able to trust what we're accessing. So let, let's let's focus down a little bit and let's begin looking at um, identification. Now, people often say that identifying vulnerability to detriment is one of the more difficult challenges that staff can encounter. But I was wondering, how can technology really help us to do this any better? Kind of what is it good at spotting, if I can put it that way, and what's it not so good at spotting? So Dom and Andrew, both of you have developed technology to... Um, if I can put it, identify, assess, and most interestingly, I think, um, rate or score uh, the level of an individual's um, vulnerability to detriment. So starting with Dom, can you just tell us a bit more about Teljo and kind of why, why, you, why you've started this uh, trust tech off? Sure, sure. So the, the problem generally is that vulnerable people won't tell you that they're vulnerable. So uh, a lot of vulnerability strategies are based around um, just dealing with the motivated few that are going to tell you that they're in that situation. So if you actually want to tackle the problem properly, properly, 
then you have to go out and proactively identify who your vulnerable customers are. Uh, and at the moment, there's no mechanism to do that. And that was a problem that uh, we wanted to solve. So Tarage is a way for customers to digitally self-disclose their vulnerability to organisations. And I'll just talk you through the process, I'll explain it. Uh, so you'll have an organisation, if you take a bank, for example, there might be an indicator of crisis, something like a, a missed payment on a loan or an authorised overdraft, whatever it will be. That then is a good opportunity for a socially responsible business to contact that customer to see if they're vulnerable or see, or see if they can proactively identify any vulnerability. So as a, a socially responsible business, they'll send out a Tailjo to that person. Uh, that person will click on the Tailjo link and that'll open up our digital self-assessment. The customer take, you can do that in about seven minutes. And we're just asking a series of questions on their smartphone. And then at the end of that, we're going to kind of assess their, their level of vulnerability. Uh, and what we also want to do, what happens with Tarjo, is we actually automatically signpost to support organisations. So if there's a potential uh, money issues, we'll signpost a step change or whoever that may be. Then at the end, we'll ask explicit consent and we'll say to that person, we'd like to have your data. So if any interventions come up that we know that can support you, we want to tell you about them in the future. But also we want to share that data back to the originating company so they understand your level of vulnerability so they can then... Um, positively discriminate and make sure that they support you ongoing. Uh, and that's kind of Tarjo in a nutshell. That's a very, very concise and admirably concise uh, definition. Uh, let's let's unpack that a little and I'll ask others to come in if, they, if they've got questions or kind of comments on this. What, what sort of questions would, would I get then as a, as a consumer uh, once I've, I've got this link? And, and secondly, well, I think it's a bit strange that the organisation themselves isn't asking me these questions. Well, I think uh, with a lot of organisations, there's a trust issue. If my bank rank rings me up and says, tell me about your mental health, I'm not going to have that conversation. If it's a neutral, trusted brand um, and we're asking in the right way and having the right conversation, then they're more inclined to, to give us that, that information. Um, we're asking a lot of questions because we want to understand their full kind of level of vulnerability. So we're asking all sorts of questions about benefits and if they've been to a food bank. Because what we want to understand is where people haven't had a voice and where they, they may be um struggling with certain things we want to we want them to understand it we want to signpost and we want them to get that help you know that's the whole purpose of tail joe so what kind of areas do the questions cover and are they open questions or they're yes no's or lots of fives or lots of yes no's uh lots of yes no's we've got a lot of mental health questions as well which is covered with uh with our clinical psychologists so um, we're, we're basically asking questions about the mental health uh, about physical health about benefits about financial well-being um about life-changing events as well so we want to cover the full spectrum of vulnerability because what we also want to start to understand is the correlation about how they all link in together and if we solve one how does that then impact on the other so we're asking quite a series of questions so you're carrying covering a broad range of issues there so that how do you then concisely put that together as a signal back to the organisation about the level of vulnerability or back to the consumer? Do, do I get a score or a colour or a flag? Um, yeah, so so we'll label uh, the, we'll, we'll give a score of say low, medium or high, just to keep it really simple, that's it. Um, but also we'll give a lot of kind of text uh, and, and say, you know, because what we want to do is we want vulnerability or, or the uh, qualification of vulnerability to be a positive thing. We don't want people to perceive that it's negative and it's changing that that whole kind of framing on that. Um, so, so we want people to understand it. We want people to get help, and then we want to be, we want to communicate certainly potential safeguarding issues and so on back to the originating company. So, you know, we don't want them 
asking for unauthorised overdraft payments or sending out bailiffs if somebody's at risk of suicide. And we, we need responsible organisations to start thinking the same way. Okay. It's, um, Andrew, um, with the Morgan Ash uh, Scoring Index for Vulnerability, I'm sure it's got a pithier kind of title than that. Um, can you tell us a bit uh, a bit about that? Because um, in some ways it's it's similar to Teljo, but as you were saying before, it, it's different in others. Can you just give us the lie of the land on that? Yeah, so... so- we're looking for particularly uh, at existing customers as well as new customers. So if you take a, a bank or a lender who's got X thousand uh, existing customers, uh, how do they know um, uh, they are uh, their condition? At the moment, they'll probably have some good credit information or you can infer some information about their wealth because of the process they did when they came and they bought or they took out the loan. Um, but they'll have no, normally, typically have no information about their health or their well-being or, or any other vulnerability. Uh, and so how do you, uh, and in financial services, uh, uh, where typically it's sold by one company and then bought by, by another, how is that information transferred? And, and you can't have a, a, a whole list of, you know, handwritten notes or, or text, if you like, which says, oh, this person has a bereavement or they're suffering from some mental stress or something. So that you need to communicate that across the distribution channel. And, and, and how do you do that? You've then got loads and loads of different people. So how do you house that all that information? So, so we, we, we call it MARS, so it's Morgan Ash Resilience Score. You know, we deliberately call it resilience as opposed to vulnerability. Uh, resilience is a, a, you know, it's like calling it a, a credit score is actually about debt. So let's put a positive spin on it, um, and uh, which is, you know, part of the PR, if you like, to the consumer. So uh, that holds a lot of information then about their wealth, their health, their financial capability in great detail. But the point is, it has a very simple, we use a 1 to 10. Uh, we, we do also, we map that across to the uh, red, amber, green of the um, money advice service users. Um, what, what we're trying to do is communicate it sufficient granularity so the appropriate treatment will occur for that person. So at a very simple, uh, one is very, uh, so one is, is very ill uh, and 10 is, is very, very healthy. So, uh, or, or no, not vulnerable. Uh, if you're a 10, an 8, a 7, or 8, or a 10, then you'll fly through. No one needs to know anything else. You can just do your normal process. If you're then in the in the low score and you're a 1 or a 2 or a 3, um, there is something you need to address. So what is that? Is it, a, is it a financial issue? Is it a health issue? Is it a physical? Is it a mental health issue? And the granularity may stop at that point uh, for the particular person who's come across that, so say, in the database. So... Uh, but then uh, you need sufficient detail to say, okay, this person, uh, they, they're registered as a two, uh, and it is because of a mental health, it's a dementia issue, and their coping strategy is that actually we uh, we talk to the the, uh, the family member. If you have that, then then you can put in the right treatment. So you do need sufficient detail uh, so you can understand what is the problem and hence put in the right treatment. Now, in, in sensitive areas like such as mental health, it may be it just says mental health and just says stress without going in too much detail about the why and the reasons and so forth. But that may be sufficient that the correct treatment is put in place. Uh, so how, the level of granularity you keep that data and the level of granularity you share that data uh, can be filtered at each point. So the idea then is that companies will use this across the value chain. So someone will be able to collect that data at the point of sale. Uh, or if they're doing some uh, large-scale modelling on a, on a large number of cases, and then store that and and use that as they go through that cycle. And you're talking, you know, if we're talking sort of equity lease, equity release, or uh, interest-only mortgages, you've got thousands of thousands of people in there who are likely to get into, uh, you know, situations as they get older, which could be problematic. 
So you need to have understanding of that. Uh, and also you need to be able to measure it and need to be able to report on that to quantify it, not only for the FCA, but for your own purposes of what you might do in quantification of it. Uh, and hence, you need to make that kind of simple and it needs to be structured. And hence, that's why we have a very, uh, at a sort of high level, a very simple uh, Mars score of one to 10. Okay. Um, so we heard a bit about um, Teljo and uh, what the consumer sees. So with the, the Mars score, kind of what would I see as, as a consumer? Because clearly, you're, one of the advantages of this is you're compressing a huge amount of information. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the algorithms or the kind of um, ways in which you do that into a single, single figure, um, which could create a, a, a black box. I can see the advantages of doing that, but it does narrow it down quite considerably to, to a number or a rating. Can you just tell us a bit more about what the consumer sees? So the, uh, so the consumer owns all their own data, uh, you know, under data protection, GDPR and so forth. Uh, they have full responsibility of what they want that data to be. Uh, and I think we get very scared about that data. Uh, but if you take the case of, um, you know, a son going into a, a bank and saying, look, my mum's got Alzheimer's, can I deal with the account? And being told, no, you can't. I can't speak to you because of GDPR. That is clearly a nonsense. So... There will be people who don't want to uh, have their data stored, and that's fine. Uh, but also there'll be a lot of people who are very happy to have their data stored because it's to their benefit. And I think we have to focus on, on, on let's fixing some of the problems we have and not worry about necessarily, uh, which we think is a relatively small proportion of people, who, who won't want the data to be stored. Because uh, in most cases, they're not going to be the vulnerable. Okay, so I'll push you a bit further then, Andrew. Yeah. And, and Dom, do come in here as well, because I'm, I'm sure this is something you, you've given thought to as well. But isn't reducing vulnerability down to a number of rating, sort of, some people might say, missing the point that we need to find out what they're vulnerable to, as opposed to describing or quantifying the situation they happen to find themselves in? So from one hand, um, yes, no questions might indicate that something is happening to somebody, but it doesn't indicate what they are vulnerable to. And the same with a, a scoring system. How would either of you kind of um, respond to yeah, that? Yeah, so, so it, it, you know, in our systems, we, we have, you know, tens of thousands of conditions and medications, um, which will go into all the great detail about someone's, uh, about someone's health. So we can get to a fantastic level of granularity. Um, but you need to be able to communicate that very simply uh, to frontline staff without necessarily, A, uh, uh, giving the fine details of the, of the Latin name of the condition, uh, and also uh, it's not necessary to share that level of detail. Uh, and mental health is the classic. So actually, no, just this person suffering from stress. Let's just leave it at that. We don't need to go into any more detail about the particular condition they have because the treatment, i.e. what the financial services company is going to do, is going to be the same, be they, have, be they suffer from uh, you know, one type of mental health or another type of mental health. So I, I think it's the uh, uh, you're absolutely right uh, when you build up the code. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it's like when you go and see the doctor and say, well, are, am I going to be OK? You kind of need a simple answer, um, not, uh, well, I can give you I can give you a hundred page report. Dom, it's kind of how you're approaching this. Yeah, I think there's a danger of, uh, of overcomplicating it. I think the problem that we, as we see it is there are lots of people, you know, millions of people that are suffering and need support. And, you know, if we can just find out one thing and give them that support, then that's a success. You know, if we can just find one person that, you know, sitting on their own and potentially suicidal, we can stop those collection letters, then, you know, we we don't want to make it overcomplicated. That's the mission. We just mm. need to get on and do it. But with every mission, there's always mission creep and kind of um, there's a danger here that you, you create a black box that's not accessible to either the consumer, and I take the point about sharing data, that where we don't quite know how we're being scored. 
And I, I wondered kind of what the view on that is. At the moment, it's um, it's beneficial, open and transparent. That's fantastic for b- both companies. But a bit like insurance, where we're not quite sure what lies within the black box. Are we creating another black box for vulnerability that could cause people problems in the future? I don't think so. It's a very short answer. It's going to kind of push you a bit to kind of explain why. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's... As a society, we're moving away for that for-profit shareholder value society more to actually want to create social value. And that actually is our primary goal. And profit's a, a kind of measurement of success, I guess. And, you know, I think as we as we have the goals and we and we bring our, our customers uh, with us, you know, I think it's kind of that this is where we'll see the growth for Trust Tech. And this is what it's all about. I, I think that 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 is a, uh, that fear about oh, companies will hold my data uh, is a is a misnomer. Um, clearly, if someone doesn't want to hold data, they can say so, and, the, and, and that data can be deleted. But the uh, you know we regularly uh, will will give out tons of data just to get a free Wi-Fi code. Uh, all the you know the social media is, is collecting tons and tons of data on us, uh, and there are a very few people who who don't engage in it for that reason. But they're a relatively small number. Uh, and, and the fear of that, the fear of not holding of, of holding data, uh, I think is actually one of the things which is which is holding back uh, the moves to actually manage the vulnerable. We, we have credit scores which are used throughout the country, Experian and so forth, um, with tons of data on, which actually have been there for years and non non you know, most people aren't too bothered about. Um, uh, except the ones where it's, it's, it's given them a really bad uh, a really bad score. But the um, uh, so why wouldn't you hold? Uh, and, and financial data is held in, in that way. Credit data is held uh, primarily to protect the financial institution. So why wouldn't you hold health data or, and vulnerability data, which is to protect the consumer? Mick, what do you think? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm glad you brought me in on this one because uh, maybe we can talk about talk about it more in depth later on. Uh, you know, in, in relation to the paper we published, you know, beware of geeks bearing gifts. But this point about who owns data and who controls data and who manages data, I think is going to become one of the big, big, important public policy questions of the next the next decade. I mean, I, I just, well, I've been involved in campaigning for 25 years, you know, and and every so often, you know, there's a sort of a, there's a groundswell of, 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 of opinion that says, you know, give consumers control of their data. You know, they'll level the playing field against powerful financial markets. It never works, you know. And the idea that consumers will use their data to turn the tables on powerful financial institutions just isn't going to happen. And I think a really, really a big issue that we're 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 seeing really, and I think it really worries me is that uh, it's it's in relation to the governance of data, because what we find is that, is there's a big culture gap between the people who run financial institutions who tend to be people like me, you know, sort of middle aged white men, you know, who have finally understood. What, what the FCA expects of them when it comes to conduct of business rules. But you know something, most of them haven't a clue about how the algorithms that actually run, that are at the, the core of their systems nowadays, actually work. And more importantly, they haven't a clue about what outcomes are actually produced by those algorithms and by the use of big data. Now, the, the reason that's an issue is because they, those guys run companies but don't understand the, the consequences of the use of data and fintech but the guys who are designing the technologies, designing the products, using the algorithms, tend to be sort of younger, they're more ambitious, they're more impatient. They see regulation as a burden or a stifling innovation. I think one of the big problems the FCA is going to face and the big problem that the financial sector is going to face is how do we close this kind of culture gap between the people at the top 
and the people who are designing the products and services. Mm. And that's something you were coming to at the start, Dom, when you talked about trust tech mm. and about the angle that you're taking it. And I'm sure Andrew as well, you're, you're coming here. But Dom, I mean, do you feel you're taking a different approach to the one that maybe mix outlining for some of the bigger tech firms? And we should just trust you. you know, uh, is it? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I think, I think that's uh, it's an interesting take. I think the problem that we've got is as a society, we're very good at putting barriers in place to prevent us helping people. Yeah, and having a massive conversation about data actually is not letting us tackle the true problem of actually how do we deal with the huge problem of all these people that aren't self-disclosing and that are suffering and actually we need to support them. Mm. So, and I think, and you certainly see this in larger organisations, it's much safer to do nothing, you know, and, yeah. to, and to label it and say, oh, that's GDPR, rather than take to task and actually make the changes that you need to do in order to proactively identify vulnerable customers and help them. You know, there's always a reason to do nothing. I, I just I just do get concerned about data as being this, you know, huge argument that prevents actually the job getting done. Mm. And Andrew? Yeah, I think, I think just to come to a mixed point, uh, you're absolutely right. There's, you know, um, uh, there's a cultural change. I think there was also a technology change. The the original databases put in place and the, and the, and the um, you know, the old mainframes and so forth, uh, the, the ability to manage data uh, is far more difficult uh, and, and has proved problematic for those companies and migration of data. Uh, the ability with modern tech certainly to, to manage and, and uh, understand that data and, and the metadata of the data, i.e. when it was put in there, who owns it, uh, is now far better. So, so technology has improved from that point of view. I, I totally, though, um, uh, think the, one of the issues is, is actually people run the companies don't understand a lot of, a lot of, that, uh, a lot of those complexities. Um, I think I think coming back to I, I agree with Tom though it, we are fearful of it uh, and and hence don't do things. I think there's a what's a stat about the number of carers who own the pin who know the pin number for their um, that's not is it something like fifty sixty percent or something isn't it? Uh, uh, know the pin number so they can do banking for their um, uh, for their patient. Well, isn't isn't that a, 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 a absolute travesty? Uh, as us as a society that you know that our solution is you have to know that which clearly drives a coach and horses through all the security aren't we better having a, a process in place which says actually this person is vulnerable uh, their coping mechanism is they have the carer and we have that carer on our system and yeah we have to have safeguards about who who that carer is uh, how they're registered that we know who that carer is which is going to be and that in itself won't be perfect but be a lot lot better than someone just sharing their pin number Okay, well, we'll we'll come back to this and um, some of the issues perhaps around transparency and what as consumers we can see about the way in which we're being scored and kind of rated in relation to vulnerability. I think it's really interesting. But we started to talk a little bit about kind of central registers and databases. Um, and we've got Tony here from the Vulnerability Registration Services Service. So these are not uncommon in the UK. We've got the Priority Service Register in the energy and water sector. We've got the CIFAS database of people who might be specifically vulnerable to fraud. However, until recently, there hasn't been a database that's covered broader conceptions of vulnerability and that's been available to financial services firms as well as other sectors uh, too. So, Tony, you, you saw that gap, if I can describe it as a gap, and uh, decided to fill it. So what, what exactly is the Vulnerability Registration Service? Right. <clears throat> well, very simply, it's a register, a national register, where we're trying to get people to put their name, address and details on it, but no finer details of what their vulnerability is. So essentially, we want to have a register that will notify a credit supplier, a lender, debt collection company, that that person has registered, they've said they're vulnerable, and one, 
they don't want any offers of credit or anything, please do not treat me at all. Or two, please treat me appropriately. Now, as we've mentioned here, a lot of organisations now have very effective systems for dealing with vulnerable consumers, specialist staff who are trained up, and they will be using services such as we've just been hearing about to help them identify the vulnerability and how relevant that is to their company. So essentially we have six flags. One flag is self-registered, please don't give me any credit or services, or self-registered, please treat me appropriately. Next one is I've been registered by a lender with the consumer's permission and the lender or service provider has got the permission of that individual consumer to say, please do not give me any further credit or services or treat me appropriately. And finally, it could be information put on the database by a third party. And that's quite a wide ranging number of people. So we've got obviously people with power of attorney, we've got court protection orders, we've got public authority deputies and so on. Now, what we've found at the moment is that the vast majority of those where it's a power of attorney or a third party, the individual is not wanting any services. It's people with dementia, Alzheimer's, etc. And they're going to remain on that database permanently as do not give me any credit. However, the other side, there are people who've got perhaps temporary problems. People have had a marriage breakdown or a major issue in their own personal circumstances, which means for a period of time they'd rather not have any approaches from companies providing credit. And there they can keep that on, but immediately they feel they're comfortable and can deal with it, they can come off that database. So we don't keep any personal information, any details about that individual. It's just a flag to say to a company, either don't give me any credit or treat me appropriately. So I'm applying to be a customer for a new credit card and I've self-registered. Therefore, that firm does part of its checks would check the vulnerability registration service. Yes. Um, in real time? Or is this kind yes, of... Yes, yeah, real okay, time. Real time. And then would say, actually, um, Chris, you put down here that you don't want to be um, have any lines of credit supplied. Yes. And credit's declined. So as the, as the, 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 the push for this was clearly you were frustrated that this wasn't happening then. Yeah. Because um, I can see elements of some of what you're describing existing elsewhere. A notice of correction, for example. Indeed. With the, uh, credit reference agencies. You could, but you've... Tell us why you've decided to... notices of correction, uh, historically, have not been widely used. People are supposed to use them, but very rarely do. Um, So we're looking at something a little bit more transparent, a little bit more effective than notices of correction. We have spoken to the three credit reference agencies to try and work with them, and they are very interested in what we're doing. And going forwards, once we get some critical mass, I think there is an opportunity for us to link in to the credit reference agencies as well to offer a service through them. But this will take a bit longer to do and uh, they're not eager to move on something that costs them money and doesn't make them money. Exactly. The joys of a critical mass. So if, you do, if it isn't impolite to probe, um, where does the critical mass sit at the moment with vulnerability registration service? How many? We haven't got critical mass at the moment. That's the problem we've got. And what we're pushing at the moment is to try and persuade organisations to either provide data or to use the service. And certainly the majority of the information we're going to get from uh, sort of court of protection comes from local authorities. The trouble is there's no central body you can go to, to the local authorities to say, will you give us your data? Mm -hmm. So we have to go to 199 separate 
local authorities to try and get them to provide data. Now, quite a few of them are saying, yes, it sounds like a good idea uh, and we'll do it, but it's not high on our priority list. And so we are spending a lot of our time going back to these 199 local authorities and saying, please, come on. It's the age-old problem as well that lenders are saying, well, once you've got critical mass, we'll use your service. And data providers saying, once you've got lenders, then we'll use your service. So that's the frustration we've got at the moment. Now, we're currently going to the, the trade associations from the financial theory and, and offering them a special deal to try and get them to put five of their individual members onto the database. Uh, because I think one of the concerns is that companies don't want to be the first on and as a, little, as a group of five from the same trade association coming in, they'll feel more comfortable. Mm. We so had the problem in the past with data sharing. Uh, I used to work for Experian and trying to get the keys data. Banks, for example, for a long time only provided default data. It took ages to get them to actually provide full data. Eventually they did, and it was proved to be very beneficial. So we're in that same position. So it is frustrating. But we're doing what we can and we're spending time on it. So it's nodding around the table about getting access, getting people on side, reaching that critical mass, you know, trajectory, what's it, trajectory, velocity, escape or escape velocity, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, so just to kind of just broaden it out and then bring it back to you, Tony, it's yep. kind of, are you targeting particular sectors with the vulnerability registration service? Is it just for financial services? or No, is it? no it's definitely not. Um, we've been talking to the utilities. You mentioned the PSR codes. Well, obviously... Energy are ahead of the game there. Water are catching up, but perhaps one of the areas that could really do with it, the mobile phone companies, mm. they're a bit slower coming in on that. So this is this is a real challenge because there are different conceptions of vulnerability across the sector. So with the uh, the PSR there, it's about interruption yep. of supply and where somebody comes on the list of priorities um, for maybe a suitcase generator, um, for mm -hmm. some form of intervention. That was what it was designed designed for. Um, we've got different conceptions of vulnerability within financial services. Not wildly different, but there's different understandings. I just wonder if I if I self register as as vulnerable on the um, on the database, aren't each sector interpreting vulnerability differently? So therefore, how helpful is is that to say I'm vulnerable? Because it could be that I'm not vulnerable in a PSR sense but I am vulnerable in a financial services sense. How do we kind of un unpack that? Well, that is down to the individual company or organisation. That's what we say. There are so many definitions of vulnerability to try and get a database that will cover all those options. When Malg first started looking at it, they came up with about 26 different definitions and that, that was what they'd narrowed it down to. So we're now in a position where we need to try and identify. All we do is we notify the individual companies. It's up to them then to work with the companies that we've been talking about this afternoon and to say to them, look, does it fit your definition? If so, treat them appropriately. Andrew wants to come in now. Andrew. Yeah, I, I think the we've got to move away from uh, vulnerability being a black and white issue. I, there's, there's loads of shades of grey in between. Uh, in the financial services, it's you know if, if we said someone was you know wealthy or poor, you know uh, people would think I'm stupid. So so why would we uh, do that on on vulnerability? Uh, and, and, and 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 the treatment you're going to apply it will be different depending on on their vulnerability. Well, this seems to be key. Um, so I'll push you, but I've realised I'm sitting furthest away from the door, so maybe I won't get out of the studio live when I ask this question. Mm -hmm. But it's um. It seems to be absolutely essential that consumers can explain what detriment they're experiencing. 
um, because that defines then the treatment. However, the three services that we've heard about so far have no um, record of kind of what the consumer is saying they're vulnerable to. Or have I misunderstood this and there's an opportunity within Mars, within Teljo, uh, within the vulnerability registration to put this in your own words? Well, we ask a lot of questions. So we, we hope we've got pretty much any any kind of vulnerability covered or any difficulties covered. We, are, we ask a lot of questions, about 90 in there. Um, we've also got an opportunity for customers to tell us more about themselves and have a voice, so to speak. So, uh, and what we found is in our pilots is actually, even though we're not kind of advertising that service, one in five people are offering more and more information about their situation. Um, so I think, you, you know, I think you, you need to draw the line somewhere, but I'm pretty sure, you know, at, us at Tarajo, we've got it, the whole kind of frame of vulnerability covered in, in, in everything we're asking. And there's opportunity for, for customers to, to feedback more information as well. So a bit like the uh, Monzo share of us feature where you can put in your own words, tell Joe off, is that just to check with Mars? Is that something within Mars? So so the, the principle of the Mars score is, is, is not only that you collect a load of data to create the score, but also you can you can generate the score from very little information. So uh, uh, if you have, uh, I'm going to go back to a mortgage book of you know 30,000 mortgage people, um, how, where do you start? You're not going to go out and interview every single person, uh, but you could use some uh, clever data analytics to come up with a score, uh, which is uh, looking at a propensity for them to be vulnerable. Now, this is still early days, and uh, we're not sure how good that's going to be. Uh, but the principle is that if you can do that, you could then say, okay, we've done our our, our approach using other, other accessible data, and we think that this, you know, the, these 10% are going to be the vulnerable. So we'll go and do some more work in understanding them. At the moment, that's done very simply on age. Um, so we think we can do a lot better than just that. Uh, but then when it comes down to actually engaging, uh, so that the whole point is you could have someone who could have a score there just on that simple information. Then you would speak to them probably or, or send them an online form and, and then you get a much more granularity of data. So it's not just a, a uh, uh, the whole point of having a score is it's not just uh, created from a set of questions. Okay, Mick, you were achieving. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think the big problem here, when you, when you think about it, is going to come from how does the how will the regulators? I mean, we haven't really talked about the regulators here, you know, but how will they supervise and enforce the use of this data? Because I think, I think, it's, in essence, what's happening here is it is that firms, financial providers, are moving away from really assessing financial risk to assessing behavioural and psychological. Risk. Now, if we have a uh, multiple registers, you know, which are great initiatives and very, very welcome developments. But if we have multiple types of registers with different approaches, it doesn't take a genius, you know, or, or, or a cynic like me even to sort of, you know, to 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 recognise that it'll be very, very easy for financial providers to select the register which actually provides the the firm the most protection rather than the consumer the most protection. There will be regulatory arbitrage, you know, you know, if we don't have common standards across the board when it comes to the design and the features involved in the maintenance of these important registers. You know, so I think, I mean... I, sorry, I, I, sorry I, can I, I just say say with that that Tarajay is not a register? So we're, we're very much... No, no, I didn't yeah. say that, but I, I mean, I was, I was yeah. going to can I finish the point. You know, and, and I, I completely understand that we have different credit reference agencies who use different systems and banks use different systems whenever, they, whenever it suits them. So I get that, that, you know, we've had this problem before. But you know, but trust me, you know, but trying to assess someone's behavioural and psychological risk is going to be much more complex than actually assessing their financial risk. This is going to be a much more difficult task, and we haven't even begun to debate how this stuff should be regulated in the future. That is going to be the big question. 
one of the interesting things um, with with a uh, fintech or any competitive market, not just um, financial technology, is, um, and I'm going to sound like a, an old granddad here. You know, I remember the early days of vulnerability where everybody shared everything. Commercial interest enters the um, in, enters the discussion. So sometimes it's quite difficult to get transparency about what's being collected, what arrangements exist with individual firms, which is not a criticism of actually taking action. It's a reality of the, of the marketplace. I mean, how do we? How do we work towards these kind of a wider levels of transparency? Um, are we expecting the regulator? So the FCA are due to come out, we're told summer. In, when I worked in the NHS, summer meant Christmas, but kind of let's see what happens. Uh, we'll get these minimum standards on vulnerability, which surely must be looking at some of the aspects of what we're talking about today. How do we get there for a bit more transparency and uh, standardization to offer protection to the consumer? I think I think one of the challenges is how, how do we do innovation in this area? So we've got great, it's got these different approaches from different guys at the moment, um, which, which is all brilliant. Uh, uh, we all have slightly different take on it, slightly different ways to bring it. Uh, they're all valuable. Uh, they're all credible. I think it's all good. Um, I, I think Mick's point about, well, we may end up with different scores and that sort of thing. I think we, we will, uh, and that's innovation. Uh, the other way of saying, okay, as a society, we're just going to have one score would, would take us 10 years to get there. So so we need to do lots of um, entrepreneurial uh, work on this, uh, and, and there will be different scores which will come up. Um, I don't think the difference between the score, Telde score and the Mars score it, it, it is really relevant. Um, I think that's pretty academic. Uh, I think the, the, the point is you need to start measuring this. Uh, the reality is at the moment... Uh, that you know, uh, financial services firms, you know, they may do an existence checking uh, on their on their book once a year, which is you know the sort of minimum amount of vulnerability is is that person dead or alive, uh, and so any progress from that has got to be a good thing. Yeah, so I mean, again, let me just push back on that because you know, presumably, you know, if I know the if I understand the FCA being a, a former board member, what the FCA will probably do is come up with some sort of recommendation to say. The financial providers, whether it's a lender or an insurer or, or whatever, must take reasonable steps to understand the vulnerability of the consumer, you know, and make sure they have sort of followed due diligence and and in assessing that psychological and behavioural risk associated with that individual. Now, what will happen in practice then? Well, you know, the FCA will go and supervise a firm. They'll go and visit the firm to sort of check what due diligence they're actually doing, and the firm will turn around and say, "Ah, look, you know, we we use this register." which actually allows us to sort of identify vulnerable consumers. And again, it doesn't take, you know, very much to have to imagine that what will happen over time is that, you know, that, that the standards will migrate to the lowest common denominator rather than the highest common denominator, because that will be the thing that will give the firms, the insurance companies and the lenders most comfort and give them protection against supervision and enforcement rather than protecting the consumer interest so unless at the very very early stage we at least you know i'm not saying all the registers should be exactly the same but unless we determine and, and establish common standards at a very very early stage this is not going to work in providing a sort of a necessary level of protection across the piece for consumers so we, we expand that to include not just registers but assessment tools that could lead to pools of data within organizations which they could use as an internal register andrew you want to come in yeah i, I think the uh um I don't. Do we need a standard for um, you know a, a register of, of, of or a, a, a how we classify uh, vulnerability at the moment? Uh, I, I would say not. Um, I think at the moment people are saying, oh, we've got a vulnerability flag on our CRM system, and that's good enough. I, I don't think it is because I just it's just too black and white. Uh, people are saying, oh, we've trained our frontline staff on Texas and Idea, well, and that's all good, but 
but but that is there's no measurement it's too subjective there's no way of knowing uh, that's o- it's only on the people who are calling in so it's reactive well we need to be proactive and look at our existing customer base uh, as as well as as those who are just are just contacting a financial services firm so uh, we we need to try and measure them and I, and I think to say oh we're going to have a standard way of measuring that uh, would just put in another four or five years of bureaucracy uh, let let's get on and do it because we're all in ourselves in in the infancy in this uh, let, let's get on and do it and then let's come out with some experience and, and and I suspect actually the different way of measuring will think will migrate to the same but but we want to we need to remove the hurdles because at the moment um, you know there's very little going on and we need to do a lot more but let's just um, we'll move on in a moment the gold standard surely must be of any assessment tool um, the uh, perspective of the individual living in that situation because they will understand the detriment it causes to them. And I just wondered, because you're both at early stages on these fantastic kind of adventures, um, where's the lived experience uh, and the input from people with these conditions or the people working with them as well, which can't replace that lived experience? I just wonder how you're shaping these algorithms, shaping these scoring tools to kind of reflect kind of that lived and that professional experience as well. Uh, well, I mean, we've got quite a lot of experience that's gone into developing the, the questions for Taljo, and we're basing it on the on the broad framework of vulnerability. Um, and what we see and now, we're creating the evidence base from our pilots, which is great to see. So we're seeing that you know twelve percent of customers that get sent Taljo complete it. Uh, we're seeing that um, you know one in five are, are actually inputting text as well. So um, and we're seeing that we're, we're uncovering people. Virtually everybody that we're speaking to has got money problems. Um, there's a high prevalence of people with suicidal thoughts and so on. So all of this information is information that we're finding out mm-hmm. and we're able to help people at this point in time, but we want to get much better at it. We want to start timing the questions and response times and see how that correlates to other uh, pertinent information where we can maybe help them sooner with less questions. Um, we also want to look at how we do the follow-up. So at the moment, one in four people will uh, self-help and click through to a signpost themselves. So we know that that's happening. So that's over and above what's happening at the minute. But how can we get more people to self-help? What kind of nudges can we do? What kind of, you know, WhatsApp or email or SMS? What can we do to 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 move that forward? Because the thing about Tarjo is we're, we're going to start creating a lot of scale for companies. So if you, you know, if you think that 12% of your customer base is going to respond to a Tarjo, you can't manage that in an old school vulnerability team because you'll just, you'll just blow out of the water. So you need to think how you're going to do that digitally. And that's what we want to work out. And then we want to start measuring the resilience, you know, the the impact that we can make, the difference we can make to people's lives and start putting a putting a figure on that. And you've yeah. also been working with uh, a friend of this podcast, Tom uh, Richardson, who himself has, lives with a bipolar disorder and, and is a psychologist as well. So you have some of that built in. Yeah, well, Tom is uh, a really great member of the team. We're, ple- we're really pleased to have him on board. Uh, and uh, he has been invaluable in, in, in framing the questions and, and making sure that everything we do has got um, got an academic uh, tick in the box because uh, unfortunately I'm not academically yeah. gifted. He's annoying so very clever. He's the one. So yes, he is. Andrew, well, our experience, uh, our, our sort of heritage is in, in looking after ill people. So uh, medical underwriting from the life insurance industry. So we've been assessing, we've assessed millions of people for their health, uh, for applying for life insurance, critical illness, and, and we look after uh, thousands of people Um uh, who have criti- who have uh, who are claiming on those policies, uh, and a lot of those are mental health um, uh, sufferers. So, uh, and we've used that experience essentially to for, as a foundation for how we built um, uh, built up our, uh, the, the Mars School. 
Fantastic. Let's just just move on slightly. We can re- come back to some of these themes, but I just want we've heard about technological innovation, you know, and over the years uh, we've had voices issuing caution or warnings can often be lost in a much larger noise generated by some of the arguments we've heard today, some of which are kind of completely understandably valid from the point of view of those producing these apps. We, we need to make progress. Uh, we will uh, design and deliver as we go along and evaluate. Um, but sometimes those kind of the voices which maybe urge caution uh, maybe to temper the enthusiasm a little bit for longer term benefits are kind of lost. Very fortunate we've got Mick in the in the room. Now, Mick, your report, Beware of Geeks uh, Bearing Gifts, it's not exactly what you call a love song to fintech. Can you tell us why you wrote the paper and a little yeah, bit about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we've got around to this, you know, because, um, I mean, look, I, mean, I, I really want fintech to work. You know, I want to see improvements for consumers. I want more convenient financial services, more accessible financial services. But look, the reason why we published this paper was uh, was a, was as a counterweight to a lot of the hype and a lot of the you know the evangel the evangelizing about fintech and, and big data because all most of the stuff that has come out of think tanks and consumer groups and the regulator itself has been really as evangelism you know I mean they, they have not really sort of tried to sort of stand back and understand you know what are what are the realistic potential what is the realistic potential for fintech and big data uh, but more importantly what are the risks now. I think there will be some benefit for some consumers. I can see some benefits in sort of basic transactional banking. I can see, we can already see some of the sort of financial capability apps are coming out that are helping people manage their finances better. And that's all great stuff. But if you think about it again, objectively, that that leads me to a very, very simple question. How do you make the good stuff pay? You know, and as of yet, I have yet to see any sustainable business models that, that give me comfort that that good stuff can actually be scaled up to such a degree that will help a large number of consumers rather than just a minority of sort of very empowered, very articulate, very confident consumers. So I don't really see it uh, see it delivering much scale in, in terms of benefits. And I think already what we're seeing is that some of the some of the more pure fintech companies that set up that set it with these sort of great missions about changing financial services, already they're becoming like old fashioned banks. They realize they cannot make money selling pure fintech products. They're already thinking about having to cross-sell products just the way banks did, and they will cross-sell high-margin products like pension products, insurance products, and consumer credit products. That is the only way they can actually survive. So I think what is more likely to happen, rather than seeing a new ethos or new sort of principles coming into financial services, I think what will happen, more likely to happen, is that established providers will adopt and adapt fintech to their own needs. And again, I think this then comes to a simple question. Will they use fintech for the public interest or will they use it for commercial interest? And the history of financial services tells me that we should be very, very sceptical or at least sort of pragmatic about the sort of the potential for established providers to use fintech for the public good. So very limited benefits as far as I can see from a very objective, pragmatic assessment of fintech. But it doesn't take a genius then to identify a number of serious risks associated with fintech and big data. The first one is there will, there will be more exclusion, not less exclusion. The history of financial services, there are a few iron rules in financial services, but one of them is, is that segmentation is associated with exclusion and discrimination. Fintech and big data will lead to more segmentation, more precise profiling, precise, precise segmentation that will create more exclusion and outright discrimination. Secondly, you know we can expect to see 
uh, providers and intermediary firms using uh, fintech and big data to exploit consumers' behavioural biases. You know, you know, the idea that it levels a playing field between consumers and providers, I think, is just wishful thinking. They will use it to exploit these psychological and behavioural biases. There's a lot of talk about uh, fintech and big data bringing down costs. Again, I haven't seen any real evidence of that when it comes to the big, the big sectors of financial services. Indeed, there's every reason to expect that fintech and big data will inject more cost into the system because we now have more intermediaries getting into the system standing between the consumer and the product manufacturer, which I think ultimately will push up costs. A very, it's also very obvious that, uh, that when it comes to things like open banking and whatever, it is going to be more difficult for consumers to exercise their rights because there will be more intermediaries in the supply chain, including intermediaries and product developers that are not even registered or authorised in the UK or in the European Union. So exercising rights when things go wrong will become more difficult. We're already seeing more scams as a result of technology and actually you know, more entry points in the financial system. And I think ultimately, I think it comes down to this point really that I talked about earlier on around the governance of data. The FCA did a, produced a really, really interesting paper there recently on, on insurance, the use of data in insurance. And they concluded that the, the boards, some, some of our major insurance companies hadn't even realised how their own pricing models worked. They hadn't even realised that the pricing models were designed to exploit loyal customers. Now, that's even a sort of in a fairly analogue world. You know, you know, the idea that sort of they won't use it to exploit consumers now you know, in, in the fintech world, I think, again, is very, very, is very naive. But more worryingly, I think one of the other things the FCA found was that the the, the, the boards of insurance companies didn't realise that the, the, the underwriters and the product developers were buying in third-party data that actually could allow people to be identified according to their ethnicity. Now, that is supposed to be illegal, never mind unlawful or, or, you know, or against the regulation. That is meant to be illegal in this country. But, it, but, it, but you can identify people by proxy using complex data profiling techniques. So again, I think there's every reason to expect that actually we'll see uh, more exclusion and outright discrimination. So let's talk about data governance then, kind of um, to focus down on that particular theme. So, Tony, with the Vulnerability Registration Service, I would have thought data governance would be a primary concern because if I'm disclosing my vulnerable situation to the Vulnerability Registration Service, yep. you're, you're going to share that with any, any uh, creditor who's a member. And if a creditor is a member, I guess you're encouraging them to download their kind of uh, vulnerable customer lists to the VRS. In a way, what you're saying is right, but we do not keep personal data. We don't keep the details of vulnerability. All we keep on that register is the name, address, date of birth, postcode, and the actual code for their vulnerability. And the fact they're vulnerable. Yes, it's the fact they're <laughs> vulnerable, yeah. yeah. But again, what use is that going to be to a scammer? What we're looking at here, we're talking about obviously uh, fintech and the amount of personal data now that is floating around that is accessible by these major companies and smaller companies. I think one of the big concerns is what's going to happen there. You know, people go, we've, we've seen, for example, uh, online banking have real problems. And I think the same thing could happen again here, that that data would be too easily available and misused. So Andrew and Dom, it's, we've got a macro uh, analysis of uh, fintech. Um, you guys, trust tech or fintech or technology companies, uh, are trying to bring about good in the world. But Mick seems to be saying inevitably 
that good kind of a, 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 a fritters or tweet them? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm more optimistic, obviously. But uh, I think I think he's right, actually. There's a, a huge culture change needed in financial services because, you know, there are a lot of companies that have made money out of vulnerability. You know, things like unauthorised overdraft fees, um, rent-to-own, payday loans, um, fixed old betting terminals, all of these things, you know, these are companies that have profited from people's vulnerability and we need to have the culture change from that and we need to be using big data to improve people's lives. And I think you've got people like the Nationwide and their Open Banking for Good initiatives and we're starting to see automated INEs. Um, you know, I think things like um, minimum payment credit cards will be a thing of the past in just a few years. So I think we're going to see a lot of change to make it a much more positive place for, for people that are vulnerable. And I, I think, you know, take mixed point, you, you can use technology for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, we're clearly using it for good. Uh, I, I think the, you know, at the moment, um, things are very crude and talk about financial exclusion. So, you know, you couldn't get loans if you're over a certain age. Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of very healthy oldies. So why shouldn't they be allowed to have those products? Mm -hmm. So uh, there is a lot of financial exclusion at the moment, and we can reduce that with technology. Um, but, uh, but absolutely, like anything, it can be used for harm. Mick, how do fintech firms stop growing up to be just like their parents? God, that's a really, really good question. You know, I, 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 I'm good. Um, well, I, I think, look, I, I'm a great, as I say, I really want this to work, look. But I think you have to work, when it, when it comes to innovation, I think you have to use a thing called the precautionary principle. Now, now, what that means is that I would rather we all sat down and tried to shape the market for good before it's too late, you know, rather than clean up the mess afterwards. Because, you know, if there is a big scandal involving fintech and big data or whatever, you know, and some of the things we're seeing you know, go, goes to, you know, is actually about discrimination, outright discrimination rather than just exclusion, which is a much more serious, serious problem. If there is a big scandal, then it is really, really going to kill confidence in some of the good developments, you know. So we've got to get this right. I think that that means, you know, things about how do we manage data? What is What are the governance structures around management data? Do we have trusted intermediaries who sit in the middle who actually oversee the use of data. We've talked about some good examples here, you know, but we need to bring that together and have a set of trusted intermediaries that oversee how data is used. And I think for the FCA, the big challenge there, of course, is that, you know, we have analogue regulation for a digital financial world, you know, and it, that needs to be upgraded. You know? That leads us into part two of the podcast. And with that, thank you very much. We've reached the end, sadly. Uh, we started today's podcast with a quote from Dean Kamen, who invented anyone? Dean Kamen? What did Dean? He invented the Segway. And I'm not sure if that adds <laughs> or takes sheen to the gnomic wisdom of Kamen's saying, but the essential truth remains the same. New technology will always try to tackle age-old problems and sometimes, with the right idea, will either come very close to solving them, if not going all the way. However, as we've heard today, we're possibly in the very early stages of using certain technologies and channels to identify, understand and support consumers in vulnerable situations. And it sounds like, in short, we need more time and more evidence, and we need it now, really, um, before we can decide on whether true innovation has happened or is even within reach. So, as ever, when listening to our conversation today, you may have been dismayed, overjoyed, or peaked into curiosity or coma. Um, do let us know. We read every tweet and message, no matter how hateful or loveful. So get in touch at Chris underscore Fitch on Twitter or via our podcast page at moneyadvicetrust.org slash podcast. Until the next time then, it only leaves me to say thank you very much to our guest uh, Mick McAteer. Thanks, Mick. Thanks. Tony Leach. Thank you. Dominic Maxwell. Thank you. And Andrew Gething. Thank you uh, very much. For their time and expertise, and as always, to your good selves for listening. That was a Vulnerability Academy podcast, brought to you by UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. 
For more information, visit ukfinance.org.uk and moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. Produced by The Podcast Company.